morning, everybody. Um, we had a bit of an early start this morning. We were up before six to drive back from uh, Jenny uh, Yonker's wedding. She's now Mrs. Jenny Adams, and uh, that was a really great experience. A beautiful wedding, lovely old church with lots of beautiful woodwork and uh, a huge organ with all the pipes in front of us. Um, her husband Dave has a very musical family and uh, some very musical friends, so there were lots of, of really beautiful and well-performed items there, and uh, they also had a lot of really interesting and, and unique ideas, at least for old folks like us, you know, um, at the at the um, reception, which which will give them a lot of memories in times to come. And I'm sure that um, Colfain will have some pictures for us to see in future for those of us who are interested. Right, let's um, let's move on to our text this morning. We're, of course, carrying on with our study in the book of Ephesians. Today, we will be looking at chapter 4, verse 1. Uh, if you could turn there now. And as we'll see in a moment, this chapter marks a very definite change in the aim of Paul's writing. Up till now, he's been waxing most lyrically indeed about how believers have been called and the very great miracle and benefits of that calling. He's been focused very specifically and solely on doctrine, but now he moves on to doing. He wants the reader to understand practically how to live out day to day what they know. Now, you might be thinking that's pretty straightforward, that's a very obvious thing to say, and I'm just making some space for you to find your place in the Bible, but actually there's a very important point here. If anyone thinks that they can continue to live the way they used to after coming to know Jesus as their Savior, then they are at least, at least 100% wrong. And there will be, there must be a clear and definite change in what they say and do. It shouldn't be there because they think it will look good or be the done thing. No, these changes will come about for two reasons. First of all, the believer really has been changed. As as we have just read in the sections before this, Jesus lives in their heart and the Holy Spirit gives them help and, help and strength. Secondly, they will on their own deliberately try to make the right choices to honor God what is done for them. Now, these are not observations made about somebody else. We're not watching somebody else to see what they're doing, but they are expectations for ourselves. They are real for you and for me today, this very instant. With these things in mind, let's read from Ephesians 4. I'm going to read verses 1 to 7 just to to give sense and continuity, but today we will only look at verse 1. Okay. I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavouring to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called, in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. I've already made some comments about the change in, in instruction from doctrine to conduct marked by this word, therefore. 
But as always with Scripture, there are some much deeper implications to this verse than just Paul beginning to tell us what we ought to do. One commentary I read contained the statement, said, Belief always precedes behavior. Now, it's one of these little phrases that sounds quite impressive and and quite often we'll just move on. But after I thought about it for a bit, it seemed not to be absolutely correct because, after all, there are often things that we do that we don't necessarily believe in. Why? Well, sometimes it's for effect. We want people to see something about us that isn't really there. Maybe we're smarter or funnier or cooler than we really are. Sometimes those behaviors are just out of plain fear. What will happen to us if we don't do what the boss says or conform to the herd around us? So I want to propose a very slight alteration to the statement by adding two qualifying words to say that true belief always precedes credible behavior. Now, as it turns out, I've spent a fair chunk of my life trying to sell various things. And I can't put my finger exactly on why, but I've noticed that I've been most able to engage the person I'm speaking to, to get them really excited and listening to me and to make that sale when I have an ironclad belief in the truth of the product that I'm selling. Yes, sir, it really will last 50 years. It really does have those benefits thanks to clever technology and I can explain why. Now, all salespeople make these claims, don't they? Their product is invariably the most wonderful in the universe. And we all know that they speak like this, so the claims that they make, well, they just don't generally excite us. What will make the difference then is this matter of connection with somebody who truly believes that what they are saying is really worth hearing. It's some mysterious matter of body language and tone and gaze that communicates that what they say is true. Now, so far I've been talking about two-person relationships, but the same also holds true for what we do by ourselves. In fact, I think it's especially true because the way that we behave when we don't think that anybody else is watching is an expression of what we really, truly, truly and genuinely believe. Do I truly believe that I am saved by the blood of Christ and therefore reconciled to God, that my sins are forgiven, that God has a plan for my life and is sovereignly involved in every instant to work it out? Yes? That's good then, but do I behave in a manner worthy of that belief when no one else is around? If not, I have some personal questions to ask myself and try to answer. However, one thing is for sure. If I really, truly believe these things at a personal level, then they will be like a shining light of credibility at a public level. So help me, Lord, in my unbelief. What sort of help might we, might we be hoping for? Would it be uh, some miraculous spiritual intervention that you know stiffens up the spine and doesn't need too much effort, perhaps? Well, sometimes God will will help in this way, but most often he wants us to make some effort too, so that we will grow. And for that purpose, he has revealed himself, his purposes, and how he expects to behave, us to behave through the Bible. Now, so far I've been speaking about the link between true belief 
incredible behavior. But actually, there's a supporting position, a really important one, that comes right before that, and that's the matter of doctrine. What's doctrine? It's simply defined as a body of beliefs about God, humankind, Christ, the church, and other related concepts, considered authoritative and thus considered worthy of acceptance by all members of the community of faith. Now, how do I get me some of that? Well, you're getting some doctrine right now, aren't you? But it's pretty much passive. All we have to do is just pitch up and receive. But what are we doing actively to set that doctrine deep inside us and make it real? Are we reading scripture? Are we studying books written about God's word? Are we participating in small group discussions or talking those things over with a close friend? Are we asking the Holy Spirit to help us understand tough and gritty passages? Or are we just coasting along and hoping for the best while living with a sense that we aren't good Christians? Well, we aren't. Sort of. I need to qualify that because our goodness as Christians from God's perspective, thankfully, isn't dependent on what we do, but on God's and Christ's righteousness. But as I said the last time, and I'm making good a promise here, to say it again, we are called to cooperate in the business of sanctification. Remember what James had to say about this matter. In James chapter 1, he says, Therefore, lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. Well, that's doctrine he's talking about here, folks. That implanted word is what we learn from the Bible. He goes on, But be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man observing his natural face in the mirror. For he observes himself and goes away and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. But he who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it, and is not a forgetful hearer but a doer of the work, this one will be blessed in what he does. And now he echoes Paul's point because he gives us an example right away, moving from doctrine to doing. If anyone among you thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his own heart, this one's religion is useless. Pure and defiled religion before God And the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their trouble and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. Let's carry on talking about this important matter of getting doctrine on board. Try and get some sort of a practical example. Now, one of the things I've been privileged to do in my life is compete in motor racing in a number of ways. And one of the ways that I've done that is as a navigator in a rally car. Now, the navigator... He's not got quite as glamorous a job as the driver, but he's a kind of an on-board personal assistant to the driver. And their job is to make sure that the the crew is at the right place, at the right time, and most vitally to call the pace notes. Here's a picture of some, and I will will try to decipher, uh, decipher those for you. Okay, so this will be the first page for a stage and as you can see it says SS15, special stage 15 it's 5.1 miles in length you tell the driver that so that he knows, you know, it's a short stage he's going to go flat out it's uh, generally a good surface and it's rough on the last mile, okay 
And then the marshals will count them down. Five, four, three, two, one, and off they go. Okay, and the point of a rally, by the way, is to see who's fastest one at a time over a short piece of road. Okay, that's what they're, they're doing. That might not be obvious. So the navigator would, would, would read. He'd write, he'd read 100, right 7 over culvert into left 4, which tightens 50, left 3, late and right 3, and left 3 do not cut into right 2, keep in, which opens. Does that all make sense to you? Okay. The numbers, the distances, 100 meters. Okay. It says right seven. Big number means it's a fast corner. Small number means it's a slow corner. Okay, so the driver knows it's a fast corner over a culvert. And at a distance, well, the smallest distance they use is 50 meters. So it's less than 50 meters, but it's not immediately. Okay, so in a short distance, he's going to have a left four, which tightens. It starts out as an open corner, and then it gets sharper and sharper as he gets into it. 50 meters, there's a left three. Okay, it's late. What that means is that, again, that it sharpens up later on. And then and means immediately there's a right. So he's going to be going left and right. So you see what, what he's doing here. He's creating this mental picture in the driver's mind so that he can sort of see in his head what's on the road ahead and set the car up and be ready for it. Because if he doesn't, <laughs> you know, he might have... Uh, he might have the most talent in the world. He might be the best driver ever. He might have the most powerful and best handling car that it was ever built. But if he arrives at that corner doing the wrong thing, it's all going to end in tears. Now, my very first rally uh, ended just like that. I've also had a had a crack at driving as well. And uh, this rally, well, it, in, it in, included a notorious corner called Quattro Corner. Because in years previously, another entrant had smashed up his Audi Quattro there. Now, this um, this rally ran through the night, which which made this corner very, very deceptive. As you arrived there in the dark with your headlights on, it really looked like the road went straight ahead. The problem was that was the old road. <laughs> the new road went over there, and in front of you was a big ditch. Now, this was our first rally, and my navigator had lost his place in the notes, but figured... Where he was about two seconds before we arrived, and I still remember him shouting in my ear, Hey man, this is Quattro Corner! And it was too late. Now, are you and I reading our heavenly post notes? The Word of God. Is our doctrine right? Will it feed true belief and give birth to credible behavior? Or does some kind of spiritual quattro corner lie just ahead and we are unawares? I can't answer that question for you. Only you know the truth of where you are in that matter. And only you can make the changes if changes are necessary. What I can do is make the challenge. And that's a challenge that's to me as well. The rest is up to you. Anyway, at this point I realized I was in serious danger of turning an expositional sermon into a topical one. So let's go, let's go back to the text. So far in Ephesians, Paul has been putting the doctrine behind that true belief in place, brick by brick. And he wants to encourage its fruit of credible behavior. And while we're on the subject of doctrine, you'll see in your notes that there's a, 
a very helpful table there that summarizes what Paul has said so far about the new situation and the believer. And really, we can see from that it's the most amazing gift one could ever hope for. And it provides every reason imaginable for a worthy walk. Have a look at it when you get home. But for now, I just want to focus on what Paul says in verse 1. I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. Now, this word beseech is a pretty pretty old-school English word, but it's a really good and strong word that goes well beyond merely asking somebody to do something. To give you some idea of that, well, here are some of the different ways it has been translated in different versions of the Bible. Sometimes it says imploring, pleading, calling upon, begging and exhorting. And it comes from a Greek word parakaleo, which has the idea of coming alongside someone to encourage them, to urge someone to take some action, especially some ethical course of action. Paul isn't talking at believers or just merely vaguely suggesting some action, but he is, he's come right alongside to speak strongly and encouragingly, to take them by the elbow and say, come on, do this, it's important. I don't know how many of you watch the TV show Mythbusters, but a recent program investigated some of the science behind birds such as geese who fly long distance in a V formation. It turns out that the turbulence from the lead bird's wings creates lift for the ones behind so that as a group they can fly much further and faster than a single bird could do alone. The thing is that geese don't fly silently, do they? They honk at each other as they go. They aren't critics, but they are encouragers. Those at the rear are sounding off to parakaleo, to exhort those up in front to stay on course and maintain their speed. And this is just what Paul is doing here. And we can carry on that good work too. Is there someone flying alongside you today who could use some helpful honks? While this illustration is helpful, it doesn't quite give the full sense of parakaleo because it seems that this word was very commonly used by Greek authors in the context of leaders who were exhorting troops who were about to go into battle. It is, it is a word of the rallying call. It is the word used of the speeches of leaders and soldiers who urge each other on. It is the word used of words which send fearful and hesitant soldiers and sailors courageously into battle. It seems very appropriate then for Paul to use it for the Christian who day by day will invariably face a battle with the world and the flesh, and Satan. While I was looking at this word, I came across some really inspiring stuff. One of those little windows of insight that you sometimes get into Scripture where things just come together. In the last sermon, I raised the matter of Jesus' promise to send the Holy Spirit to each believer as a helper. It turns out that that Greek word helper is directly linked to what we're talking about because it is the Greek word parakletos. It comes from the same root word as what we're speaking about. Sorry, Rory, could you go to black on that now? That's I think it's just, just a distraction. With this knowledge, we can see more of God's plan to help us. Paul wants to para, parakaleo, to urge and exhort us from the outside. Okay, That's the job of Scripture whilst the Holy Spirit is the parakletos, the helper and strengthener on the inside. You see that? But there's more. 
In 1 John 2 we read, My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Guess what the Greek word for advocate is? It's that word parakletos again. It seems that this word has a great background in Greek law. The parakletos was the prisoner's friend, the advocate and counsel for the defense, the man who bore witness to his friend's character when he most needed it and when others wished to condemn, condemn him. Therefore, when we describe the glorified Christ as our parakletos, we mean that he is there to speak for us before God. Do you sometimes feel that you are alone in your struggles with sin or some other aspect of your life? Well, what we have heard definitely proves that we are never alone. God has, as always, provided so richly for us. We have his Bible to urge us in our hand, his Holy Spirit within to help us, his Son Jesus in heaven to speak for us, and the Father always gives us his ear when we call. That's what we learn from this word. This is complete and perfect help from all angles and for every situation. So, when things are tough, remember parakletos and that it means those gracious gifts. And remember those gifts too when times are good and give thanks because they are precious and undeserved. It's clear that we could go on and talk about urging and encouragement a great deal because it's such a, a rich topic, but we must move on to the rest of the verse. Paul's intent is to urge us to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. This matter of the proper walk is so very important to every Christian, so I was delighted to find this short video clip that I believe everyone will find most educational. If it works. <laughs> I, I think that makes the point. I think that's Mr. Cleese is he's a beauty. He's a real beauty. At the very least, John Cleese has helped us to see that when Paul is talking about walking, he is not suggesting that some particular motion of the legs is necessary for proper spirituality. And that's a blessing, really, when you think about it. The word used here for walk is peripatio, which literally means to walk around. But its usual use in the New Testament relates to the daily conduct of one's life, or how you might order your behavior, or in which ways you might pass your life. So when we use this word walk, we really just mean lifestyle. For the Christian walk is a picture of both what we do and how we advance step by step. It might seem very obvious, but walking 
actually involves a great deal more than just motion. We don't generally wander lonely as a cloud when we walk with no intent. Most often it is with a, with a very specific reason in mind. So it must involve a number of deliberate actions. Things like starting for a goal, checking for progress, maintaining the right pace, persevering until the goal is reached. And it draws together a great deal of what we are. It's our physical selves, our nerves, muscles and sinews to move. It involves the action of the mind and the decision to start and the heart and the desire to continue and the will and the determination to arrive. When we look at walking in this way, it is clear that actually it is a very descriptive word for what we need to do correctly to be effective Christians. I believe we can draw from this knowledge that we shouldn't take that what we do lightly or hope that we might do it as automatically as we might previously have thought walking to mean. Instead, we ought to spend some time thinking about, well, what are our spiritual goals? How are we doing in achieving them? Do we need help? And so on. Have we engaged our whole selves in the task? Muscles, mind, heart, will? Or are we just on autopilot and still hoping to win that race? If we can say yes to those things, then that's truly marvellous. But there is also hope when we fail, because each step is brand new. Did you stumble on the last step? Well, watch where you're going and lift your foot high the next time. Did you slip in some mud and fall? Well, aim for better ground. In the Christian walk, every single solitary step has the potential to be better than the last, providing that we have aimed before we fire. These pictures of sustained effort, deliberate decision, heartfelt desire and determined will are all great examples of how we practically practically ought to work out our sanctification as a way of life. We will need to make that decision to start walking. It may well be that we don't know where we're going, but one definite step at a time is enough for God to work with. We will need to keep going, won't we? Because a lot of the time it will be hard and we might want to give up. But the reward at the end is definitely worth it. One thing is for sure. Being still is easy. But if we never move, how will anyone ever know whether we are alive or dead? The final thought about walking. We do it every day and we don't think about it, but those steps steadily add up. A few years ago, I remember talking to a friend of ours who lives across in Palmy, and the, the exact circumstance escapes me, but I do recall that she had taken up some challenge or another to do a million steps. And when I said I thought that that would take a while, she surprised me by saying that it had only taken three months of normal activity to get there. Just three months to do a million steps. It caused me to think. Now, Imagine, just imagine, if you took one million definite and deliberate steps forward in your Christian walk. How would they add up? And where would you be? 
There are two facets to this business of walking. One is personal and one is public. There must be the inward and personal processes to start and keep walking. We've spoken about those at length. However, there is another part which has a much more public face. In the balance of this verse, we are beseeched to work worthy of our calling. So far we have talked about the exhortation and the walking, but what is this worthy part? What you read today as worthy is the Greek word axios, which means having the weight of another, weighing as much of, of like value, worth as much, or in a literal sense it means bringing up the other beam of the scales. What Paul is saying is that our calling and our conduct ought to be in balance, just like a pair of scales. How can we figure out how to do that? To begin with, what is our calling that we are to balance with? Well, Paul has spent the last three chapters telling us about that. Here's a few choice verses to remind us of the general tone. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace, which he made to abound towards us in all wisdom and prudence. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. That's just from chapter 1. We're not even trying hard. When all we have read is taken into consideration, it shows that we have a most wonderful and weighty calling. As I wrote this, I was initially concerned that weighty was maybe not the right word to use because it gives the impression of making the task seem impossible and it also implies that salvation might be something we can earn by good works, which can never be true. However, when we consider all that God is and all that he has done for us, there actually isn't really a more satisfactory word. In fact, it doesn't say enough. We could even say that our calling is very weighty, which only emphasizes the difficulty more. If we did have to make that balance on our own, we would never ever be able But here we find another miracle and a blessing. God's involvement in our lives somehow makes him present on both sides of the scale. It isn't just up to us. On one side of the scale is God. He has sovereignly initiated our calling and created this weighty moral and spiritual debt. But then on the other side, in balance, we find him as well. He has become man as Jesus, who with the help of the Holy Spirit carries the bulk of the burden so that we can understand what Jesus meant when he said to us, Come to me, all you who are labor and are heavily laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is light. Sorry, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. God has made it possible for us to find that balance, but we do still have to contribute our mustard seed. How do we do that? 
Well, it's easy. We walk. Put one foot in front of the other in obedience through the journey of sanctification. And there is something else. A while back I mentioned that there was both a personal and a public aspect to this matter of walking worthily. And certainly there is a very great deal to consider about the personal implications of doing that. But I'm sure that Paul also intended for us to consider the public ones too. Any hunter will tell you that movement attracts the eye. You can scan the bush all you like and see nothing in front of you but just one twitch of an animal's ear and it will suddenly pop into focus. You'll be able to see it. Being a Christian is just like that. It's very tempting for us to blend in with our surroundings and become one of the crowd, to not be seen, to move and be like them so that we don't stand out with our movement. But our walk ought to consistently give us away. We all laughed at John Cleese earlier because his actions seemed so extreme. But then the difference between saved and unsaved is really quite extraordinary. We aren't talking about shades of grey here, but light and dark, day and night. From the spiritual perspective, Christians are like bright little suns running around in a sea of absolute blackness. It's impossible that those lights can be hidden or put out. They're always there in plain view. The same ought to be true of our physical presence in the world. It may be uncomfortable, but no matter what the circumstances, Christians always ought to walk in a way that honours their calling. A calling that was made by holy and mighty God, the Alpha and the Omega, the creator of everything everywhere, but also the one who made himself a man to die for our sake. To respond in any other way really just can't be enough. Let us pray. Lord, as always, we have so much to thank you for. Lord, I pray that we would all take time to see where you are, how you work, what you have done, that we would give you praise and thanks for that. But more than that, Lord, we would pick up our feet and start walking. And that our walk would be worthy of what you have called us to do. That we would be salt and light in the world. Not for our own sakes, but for your sake, Lord. Because you are worthy of all glory and honor. And we pray that in some small way, Lord, we could contribute to that and show it to the world. So that others would be called to be your sons and daughters. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.